for December 16th, 2019. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 598. We managed to answer three questions. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we are uh, sitting together, just, just uh, you know, delighting one another with strange and uh, irrelevant questions and delightful and funny funny answers. It's something that we've done for decades and decades together, and it's something that we are very happy to share with you on every episode of the Overthinking a Podcast, but none more than this particular one. I'm Matt Rather. I am here uh, with my good friends, Matthew Belinky. Hello, Matt. Hey, everybody. Happy Star Wars Eve. <laughs> uh, Peter Fenzel. Hey, Pete. Hey, how's it going? Happy uh, seeing the Michael Bay movie on Netflix Eve post, something like that. <laughs> and Mark Lee. Happy end of the decade, everyone. Let's get this one over with, please. (laughs) End of the decade, Eve. All right, here's the plan for this episode. We have seen an advanced screening of Star Wars and are going to drop all the spoilers for uh, the entire movie. Uh, Let's let's go around. Uh, Blinky, spoil spoil Star Wars for us. Deus Ex Jar Jar. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> you Excellent. took mine, Matt. You took mine. <laughs> it was wow. really shocking. Misa, people going to watch some Star Wars? Uh, Pete, you have, a, you have a Star Wars spoiler for us? Um, the spoiler, I guess, is that at the end, Finn, you must imagine that Finn is happy at the end of the movie. I mean, whatever that means to you philosophically, (laughs) ontologically, empirically, um, Finn has arrived at some form of happiness. I Uh, I will assure you all of that. Okay, okay. He really just wants, like, a job as a janitor anywhere else but, like, Starkiller Base. (laughs) But sometimes you can't always get what you want, but you get what you need, right? That's what's important. Mark, uh, you have a Star Wars spoiler for us? Oh, yeah, it's really rough. Baby Yoda uh, ages up into finally like preteen Yoda and is really moody. I mean, just like uh, cranky and ornery. All that c- cuddleness is cuddle- cuddliness and lovability is gone, <laughs> you know, gone, d- destroyed. Really Disney dark. Disney actually her. does own the necessary IP to do a teenage Yoda and teenage Groot team up movie. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> Don't oh, give them ideas, Matt. They will totally do that. Yeah, exactly. Guardians, Guardians crossover. I like, uh, I like the idea of Baby Yoda being adopted by like Poe Dameron or something, and being like, "My real dad, you are not Poe Dameron." <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, and my uh, final Star Wars spoiler is the Schwartz is in you, Lone Star. There it is. It's, Perfect. Uh, it's in you. No, we haven't seen. We haven't seen Star Wars. Um, we actually. So so for tonight, uh, we were shamed we were comment shamed by listener jesse um who pointed out or i i guess he asked i'm not sure maybe if we were comment shamed i i i was going to say that he he sort of needled us a little bit about not having done a listener feedback episode in a while but actually what he asked was could we do an episode of listener questions to which my answer was well we could uh what are your questions and and he replied with the or just jesse is actually not a is a uh, gender ambiguous name so they replied with a list of questions uh and three act of structure jumped on and questions it, it, it uh in in lieu of doing a more structured um listener feedback episode before the end of the before the end of the decade because next week obviously is going to be uh is going to be star wars and the following week we're going to sum up the preceding 10 years and tell you what it all means um the uh you know in lieu of a more structured listener feedback episode we're gonna do some uh, we're gonna do some questions and answers tonight we have we have great questions and answers so um let's uh let's dive in but before we do hey it's the holiday season and we're a couple weeks late for this, but uh, I just hit publish on the Overthinking It gift guide for 2019. Hooray! Hooray! Overthinking It It gift guide. You know, every year we gather up uh, a bunch of Amazon affiliate links in the spirit of commercialism 
that defines uh, that defines the the winter holiday season in the United States of America. We've done this long after affiliate marketing uh, tried and failed to save publishing in general. And uh, now, you know, now the um, the trend is the nefarious trend is so pronounced that a lot of uh, websites like uh, Goop, one that I was involved in briefly, uh, publishes many, many dozens of of holiday gift guides and there are whole websites that are just nothing but gift guides year round like like the wire cutter um content and commerce contextual commerce it's it's a thing so hey if you want uh if you want everything um you know if you want everything that we like this year go click on all the amazon links and and buy them uh buy them all or uh, leave comments on on the gift guide with your favorite things there's a link uh to the gift guide in the show notes from this episode so just tap on it in your pod podcast player in your podcast app right now and uh, go see what we recommend for the overthinker in your life all right let's dive into some listener questions and i feel like we should give uh we should give the first uh question to jesse uh because jesse is the one who uh instigated this whole um instigated this whole uh you know question question and answer sort of podcast so let's uh let's start with questions uh let's start with question one from jesse jesse says i'm always impressed and inspired by the panel's depth of knowledge and use of language what are two books you would each recommend that shaped your worldview and expanded your knowledge all right so this is going to be a three-hour podcast jesse uh, we're gonna we're gonna dive in. Let's let's uh, let's just go let's go around the horn. Uh, let's and and we'll do a draft style pick where we go around twice and and uh, if a book of your if a book gets chosen you can't you can't pick it again. Uh, Pete, why don't you uh, inaugurate? Why don't you inaugurate this the way you used to inaugurate the question of the week and try to come up with something super obscure because <laughs> uh, you know you didn't you didn't want to steal the more obvious choices from your yes. friends later on in the alphabet so so i'm going to name check probably the single most influential book that i ever read on me and i have no idea whether it is good bad or problematic and i remember spare little about the specifics except for flashes here and there and i might have mentioned it at some point way back in the day on the podcast so if you're a real deep listener and you remember this kudos to you but i will say that that in terms of influential books that expanded the way that i thought about the world i'm gonna have to name check a little book called snow dog by a guy named jim kajelgard which is the a book that i found in my elementary school library while wandering around after hours uh and i think i might have mentioned this before looking for the thickest book i could find to read because the clearest thickest book in the library was little women and only girls read that so i couldn't read this book i had to find another thick book to read uh which of course was a rather juvenile way of looking at the world but i was seven and so something along those lines seven or eight years old um jim kajelgard uh died in 1959 at the age of 48 this is not a new book i don't believe it is a major book it is something of a white fang kind of uh call of the wild kind of inspired book uh and he wrote a whole ton of dog books books where the dog is a protagonist uh, i think Maybe the one that seemed to stand out the most because it has a sequel was one called Big Red, which was about an Irish setter. And then there's another book called Irish Red, which is about, I think, the, the and then Irish Red, son of Big Red. So one of them was good enough to have a sequel. But uh, but the thing that, remind, that that struck me about Snow Dog, other than the fact that I remember I had to renew it seven times in order to finish it at the library, was that it, it's about the story of – I believe a half dog, half wolf or, or a dog that's a husky that's like born into the wild uh, under its sort of protective mother and has to grow up facing the various sorts of challenges that you might face living in the wild, uh, you know, wolves and other sorts of wild animals. And there were scenes of the little dog getting slashed on the nose. And like tasting its own blood and scenes of the little dog being like grabbed by the nape of its neck and kind of carried along by its mom. And I don't I mean, I could try to speculate as to why these images really struck me. 
Um, but there was something, I mean, if you if you really wanted to go into kind of a contemporary scholarly arena of it, the way in which the snow dog's body was subjected to the events of the story was very foreign to the kinds of stories that I had been reading up until that time. And, um, and I don't know how much it particularly influenced me that that kind of story, which maybe you don't usually read until you're a teenager and it's about teenagers, was sort of positioned to me as sort of an aspect of nature and how much that affected me, especially as someone living in growing up in New Jersey far away from the woods. Um, but there was definitely something about Snow Dog that stuck in my imagination and something about um, the, the fact, first of all, I guess I would say that nobody really gives half a crap about Snow Dog, which came out in 1948. And I still love it. And I'm not necessarily I'm not going to, like, stand down unless I mean, somebody come up tomorrow and say, Pete, do you realize how racist Snow Dog is? And I'd be like, no, I don't, because I read it when I was seven. Um, and maybe it is terrible. Right. But and I'm kind of afraid to go back to it but i will say that if you want to think about where did my my particular overthinking and impulse to like seek out things that i like and ignore things that people said were good and also kind of have some courage to love the things that i love even if i'm pretty confident that other people would find them ridiculous snow dog and the quest that i had kind of in solitude with that book was like a big one for me so so check out jim kajelgard if you like stories where dogs are the protagonists because that's what he did a whole bunch of times oh but there's also swamp cat so if you like cats, uh, there's books for you, too, in the Jim Kajelgard oeuvre. Got it. And, uh, and does it – do they all take the form of, like, biome uh, animal? Is it, like, tundra caterpillar or, you know, uh, uh, jungle – I will read you Ocelot. the titles of – I will read you the titles of a series of Jim Kajelgard books, cherry-picked for this purpose. Snow Dog, Haunt Fox, Desert Dog – Lion Hound, Wolf Brother, Swamp Cat, Stormy, Ulysses and His Woodland Zoo, Tigra, Fawn in the Forest and Other Wild Animal Stories, and of course, his big ensemble piece, Two Dogs and a Horse. <laughs> so there you go. Pete, are we sure that this movie has nothing to do with the 2002 Cuba Goody Jr. movie Snow Dogs? I actually, you mean, you mean, uh, what is it? Uh, five now, dog five. <laughs> I am not confident at all. If Snow Dog and Snow Dogs are related, I will be delighted. It has not even occurred to me to check. And in fact, even after you've mentioned it, I have not yet checked whether Snow Dogs and it might just be similar to when they made that TV show called Necessary Roughness. And nobody remembered the old Sinbad movie that I love so much. Um it is the film was released. It is written by no Jim Kajelgard is not. It is based on Winter Dance, the fine madness of running the Iditarod, which means it's about kind of real things happening and not the fictional adventures of self-aware puppies. So, all right, which I guess is a good way of describing the world, I suppose. Mark, next uh, next book in the draft. How, what do, what do we tell Jesse to give uh, to give advice on language? Oh, uh, you ready for like a doorstop of a book? Uh, this Always. is a tough one. So it's uh, it's any one of the four Robert Caro penned uh, additions to the Lyndon Johnson biography series. And each of them clocks in like a thousand pages. So um, this is a tough recommendation, but I got to go there. Um, it's it's both the kind of depth of knowledge and use of language. This is what uh, Jesse asked us for. So Robert Caro um, is very famous for his elegant prose and insane attention to detail and complex portraits of incredibly powerful Men. Um, well, there's really only two, right? Robert Moses, uh, the infamous city planner of New York City, and of course, Lyndon Johnson, uh, our former president of the United States. Um, I, I love these books uh, for a variety of reasons, but I'll kind of hone in on the overthinking angle uh, pretty quickly here, which is that um, it's about the complexity aspect of it, right? It, it, uh, it shows, it just like, it's such a deep dive into Lyndon Johnson. And its main point is that there are no easy answers to the difficult questions of our time and how the sausage actually gets made um, to like really, really condense it all. It's like Lyndon Johnson was in a lot of different ways, um, a despicable man, but also someone who um, was able to enact great change, positive change in the United States and also terrible change in the United States as well. Right. The same person who um, will the Civil Rights Act. Uh, into being in the Voting Rights Act um, was also 
deeply, deeply problematic, like not just like my 2019 standards, but also like 1959 standards. Um, oh, and he also took us to war in Vietnam and, and cost hundreds of thousands of American American lives, um, arguably need, needlessly. Um, but the way that Caro writes the book, um, it exposes you to um, a very sort of deep thought process for um, uh, evaluating and understanding history um, and the language that he uses is just really elegant and beautiful. Um, so I highly recommend it. I've probably done this before in the gift guide and on this podcast many times before. But just like pick up any book by Robert Caro, dedicate yourself to it and uh, and just go with it. All right. Tell uh, tell Siri to be uh, to be quiet there. Siri, buy everything on the overthinking it gift guide. <laughs> yes, Matthew. Right away. Siri, read Jim Kajelgard's Snow Dog out loud. <laughs> the dog ran. He ran on the snow. He was a snow dog. Good snow There is, dog. by the way, a, a four-star review on Amazon that says exactly what I expected. <laughs> so it said, is that the best praise or is that the most damning criticism that a work of art can can possibly, uh, you know, receive? <laughs> All right, Belinky, uh, draft. We have uh, Robert Caro and Snow Dog are, are taken. Uh, what's a, a, a first book to give Jesse a love, uh, a depth of knowledge and use of language? Uh, I'm going to have to go with uh, Joseph Heller's uh, timeless uh, war satire, Catch-22, which I think, I mean, the, the title is slight, can I do slight spoilers for Catch-22? <laughs> I mean, the, the, the title is inspired by this sort of uh, rule in the army, this fictional rule in the army uh, that is evoked several times, but like most notably the first time. It sort of says that uh, if, you're, if you're crazy, then you can't fly. That, that you have to be grounded. However, uh, since you would have to be crazy to want to fly, it's actually totally sane to be crazy and not want to fly, and therefore you're sane and you have to fly. So it's sort of like the, this, this circular logic that dictates a lot of things in the, in, in the book. Um, and what I love about it is it's both very funny but also deeply terrifying because it's about this sort of world that's in this grip of this bureaucracy um, that's and it's it's not a uniquely sort of post-war 20th century phenomenon. I think um, Franz Kafka would argue with that, but it is sort of like I, I think it's it's a book that's become increasingly relevant in the past what 60, 70 years. It's, it's, I think it was published early 60s, and it's just this sort of um, you know like I've read I've read All Quiet on the Western Fronts, like fiction like that, and I've read. Uh, you, you know, uh, the Guns of August, you know, the nonfiction books about the war. And I honestly think that Catch-22 captures something that those don't because it just captures this fundamental absurdity. And I do think that, like, there's this fundamental feature of modern life where, like, you have to be a humorist to really get at this sort of dark, rage-fueled comedy um, that like all these people are being ground to pulp in this system that everybody feels sort of uh, bound by, but like nobody feels in charge of. Uh, and also another thing I love about it is it was Joseph Heller's first book, and I, sometimes I like to flatter myself that like you know wow maybe if I wrote a book it could be a timeless classic that sort of redefines uh, our understanding of the modern era. Yeah. Um- that, that, that's one of those did you what, how did you become acquainted with it was it like a high school assignment or was it uh just something that you did someone give it to you do you remember the first time that you read it i definitely think it was a high school assignment but i was so taken with it that i i went on to read joseph Heller's other books which are he was a little bit of a one-head wander he wrote other books none of which are classics to that you know he, he wrote one that's sort of like about uh, a little bit of Mad Many, which is sort of like being a, a corporate drone, you know, in, involved. It's it's a similar thing where it's like, like, you know, in a way, being part of a large corporation in the 1970s is a lot like being in the army and being bound by these uh, rules and regulations and being this sort of interchangeable uh, man in a gray flannel suit. Uh, but it doesn't quite have the same sort of both humor or pathos that catch 22 does i mean it is your betters definitely treat you as a as a means and not an end that's 
that's for sure. Um, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna give my first pick, and I I guess like uh, a, a biography and two works of fiction. No one no one is going for a serious like manual of of literary you know uh, uh, literary practice. So I'm going to go with a dictionary of modern English usage by H. W. Fowler. This is maybe the the only like how to use English book <laughs> that you that you should own. Uh, it was written some some century ago, and it was revised. Now, here is the thing. You don't want any of the recent versions of a dictionary of modern English usage. You don't want anything that's been edited by a contemporary editor, a contemporary writer. Uh, there's a guy named Brian Gardner who writes some good, good modern American usage stuff, but you don't want any of that. You want the, you want the hundred year old stuff. You want the straight Fowler. What I will give you is you can get the second edition, uh, which was revised by Sir Ernest Gowers. But if the editor is not a literal knight, uh, it is not Gardner uh, Fowler's um, A Dictionary of, of Modern English Usage. So it's a, it's a dictionary. It's actually, you look up topics uh, in it, like split infinitive, for, for example, is a topic uh, that you can look up uh, on which Fowler says, of course you can split an infinitive, do it whatever way sounds best, you know, and make, uh, you know, use use the language intelligently. Um, he, uh, you know, but but they're all. It's definitely one. It's a it's a big thick tome, and you can um, sort of thumb through it, just riffle the pages to any entry that you want, and what you will get is like a delightful essay, a, a sort of a paragon of good writing, in addition to being about uh, about the language. Um, this is true of a number of sort of this style of of book. Uh, John Hollander's Rhymes Reason. Um, M.H. Abrams uh, literary critical dictionary where he, he gives a, a sense of like literary historical he gives definitions of literary historical and literary critical terms and as such gives you a great sort of literary English literary education um, and uh, you know other other such books there's another one called figures of speech which I, which I think is very good and they're they're they or, or actually, you know what? Strunk and White also is is the elements of style is similar to this, where like it's a good usage manual. It's a good book about the language if it's a delight to read, because uh, y- you can tell that by being a good user of the language, the the author of the book has done some done some thinking, or at least has you know, if only intuitively, a grasp on on what makes it good. And for that reason, is is worth listening to. Round two of the draft. Let's uh, let's make this a lightning round, Pete. What is your uh, what is your number two book for Jesse to uh, develop a love of English? Oh, his number two book to develop a love of English. Yeah, oh, he's, man. or the Jesse, Jesse said uh, uh, depth of knowledge and use of language. Two books you would each recommend that shaped your worldview and expanded your knowledge. So I didn't say I didn't I didn't uh, give the prompt right. What is your second book that shaped your worldview and expanded your knowledge? I should actually, you guys all did serious ones, and I gave a bunch of room to you guys to go the first time, and then I didn't actually have one in the, in the backup. Uh, can you come back to me? Can I wrap it up? Can I come up with one at the end? Absolutely. To, like, try to all right, Mark, myself? You're, you're, next, you're next in our draft here. I mean, this is hashtag basic, but the Bible, right? <laughs> I mean, we draw on upon it constantly for its storytelling idioms, uh, for the strength of its language. Um, and it's, well, it's not just the Bible, I suppose, but it's all like sort of like layer upon layers of exegesis through the centuries uh, and, and millennia after it was published in terms of like, you know, how to interpret a text that uh, everyone is very familiar with. So it's like, I guess like, you know, Jesse, if you're not familiar with the Bible, <laughs> check it out. I'm going to, okay, so let's stuff in there. rat, rat hole gang, um, King, King James Bible or, a or a more quote unquote accurate or literal translation oh. like the new revised standard version or something like that. I mean, if you got to pick one, uh, King James, right. You know, if, if we're, if we're talking about uses of language, right. And kind of like good turns of phrase, um, and idioms that kind of, uh, uh pervade the English language. Yeah. King James for sure. 
I w- I'd say King James is 1611, if memory serves correctly. And that like, that is contemporary with the late plays of Shakespeare. So the, like it is, it comes at a time that the kind of the early, early modern literary period that was, um, very influential, uh, you know, very influential on the development of the development of modern English and what the, the language sort of became. Um, I, the joke I use about the King James Bible, my stock joke is that it is the only beautiful thing ever written by committee though, depending on whether you're a, a Stratfordian or not, I suppose you could say that the, the plays of Shakespeare are the only beautiful thing ever written by, uh, ever written by committee. All right. King James Bible from, uh, from Mark, Matt, what's your next, uh, what's your next pick? I'm going to go with Lolita by Vladimir Nabokov, uh, because here's the deal. They, they always say, write what you know, but this is a great counter argument because this is a guy who, uh, born in Russia, uh, didn't, you know, English is not his first language, didn't come to the United States until he was an adult. But I think because he has an outsider's perspective, he writes English so incisively and so precisely, and he's such a, a insightful observer of the American scene and just the way that he sees the country. It actually, you know, who reminds me of uh, Nabokov a lot is uh, Lee Child, who writes the Jack Reacher books, because those books are like very steeped in Americana. You know, the the details of the the diners and the you know the the. The, the sort of like small, forgotten, rundown towns of America. But that guy is a Brit, you know, and really comes to it, really comes to America with this sort of outsider's fascination. You know, uh, it, it soaks up the, the country from, from that perspective. And so that I, I, I do kind of feel like sometimes you can succeed by writing something you love, even if it's not something you know. Excellent. Uh, my se- my second pick is again the the yeah is a a work of literature that is designed to designed to inspire you. Uh, it is the unsurpassed. No, I'm kidding. It is uh, Douglas Adams' The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, if I if I ever if you think ever I have a memorable turn of phrase on the Overthinking a Podcast, if you think I. Um, you know, ever string words together uh, that in a way that stumbles upon a sort of, you know, wittier, delightful, um, locution uh, of some kind. I learned how to do that from Douglas Adams, and I learned kind of a love of uh, putting th- putting phrases together in a delightful way by reading and rereading The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and I had them on audiobook, which I think, it, given given our subsequent uh, podcasting experience, is, is very interesting to me, because they were an a uh, you know an audio an auditory phenomenon and not just a sort of visual one on the page. I heard the language rather than just uh, rather than just seeing it on the page and kind of maybe hearing it internally or something or 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 not. But um, you know the the Douglas Adams in general is really had a delight for sort of stating things in a way. Maybe this is just sort of uh, British idiom, and it's how it was exotic to me as a young American child. But I, I don't know. I I loved it. So uh, they've collected the whole Hitchhikers um, series into a single volume. So that's my choice for uh, that's my choice for you. The uh, the Hitchhikers Guide to the Galaxy. Series. All right, bring it home, Pete. Gosh, okay. So a couple, a couple things to name check here. One, if we're talking Bibles, I gotta throw it out for my main whoever of indeterminate gender, Iva Hoff, who published the uh, Picture Bible in 1978 as a comic strip. And I don't know if, if all of y'all have encountered the Picture Bible, but I'm not really interested in any other Bible told in pictures. It's pretty much what it is. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure that that the characters in this book are either based on or inspired a wide variety of movies. And that is a book that I read cover to cover many, many times as a kid. So as long as we're name checking our favorite Bibles and I will, I I was trying to think about what I wanted to say because you guys have talked about these kind of highfalutin fancy books, which of course I love, I love highfalutin fancy books and I could talk about Moby Dick or I could talk about how I read, you know, grapes of wrath cover to cover so many times. Um, But I mean, in terms of, Thinking like what makes you feel like you're expanding your familiarity with language. I mean, for me, a lot of it is like, well, what makes you feel like playing with language is fun? 
So, like, I kind of want to say pick up an anthology of short stories by, like, Damon Runyon, somebody who just has a really eccentric prose style, and whether they're writing in an imaginary dialect or not. But Damon Runyon is the guy that Guys and Dolls is based off of. And there's just such a delightful and distinct cadence to the way that he's um, – the way that he writes. But, I mean, really what I want to say – is that if you really want to have because when you're talking about transforming yourself, right, if you if you want to if, if you're saying that, like, well, how did you become who you are because of books? And it's like, well, it's not because the book was great. It was because I, I interacted with the book in a time that really mattered to me. And and for a lot of that, it's plays. Right. For me, it was the theater and, and being in plays and, and actually putting the words you know in your mouth as opposed to reading them off the page and, and, and being with different people who are also reading them and coming to different conclusions. But I will say this. If you want a book. That's going to change somebody's feelings about language. What you should do is take some of your favorite stuff that you've ever read, like little blurbs that you think are really cool or fun, whether they're poems or excerpts, and you get yourself a little notebook and you write those. You transcribe them into the notebook, not like a ton, you know, maybe like 15 or 20 of them or so. You know, a notebook doesn't have to say anything on the front. And you give that notebook as a gift to a friend of yours for their birthday. Because I have a book like that that was given to me on my 17th birthday. Some of my dearest friends and dear friend Laura, who some of you guys know, gave me this, a book like this that had a collection of poems that she liked and a copy of Frank Herbert's Dune, uh, which was pretty much like the the, the 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 light and the dark, the sun and the moon in terms of literary uh, literary influence. And I will say that that little red book that just had poems that somebody else liked in it that I never really would have picked on my own probably – it did a ton for me to make me feel like if you go into books, you're going to find something special. So so that's what I would say is that to a certain degree that if there is a book out there that really changes a person, it's not necessarily a book you can go buy, but it's probably a book that you can give to somebody else. So uh, so maybe we whether it involves hand transcription or, you know, copy paste or just picking a book that you really like and giving it as a gift to somebody uh, who you think would really enjoy it. On a special occasion, um, that would I say is the most impactful book of all. Is, is a book given that circumstance. Fair, fair enough. Let's uh, and and let me add that uh, the book is even more impactful if you get it off of the Overthinking It gift guide. <laughs> Yes. The 2019 Overthinking It Holiday Gift Guide, where we have a number uh, of exciting books that, that you might enjoy. Um, and also links to everything that we've, that we've mentioned in this draft is, uh, are, is in the show notes. So just look in your podcatcher there and you can, uh, click into, tap into Amazon to, to, uh, get those things. All right. Let's, uh, let's, uh, shift to a question by three act destructure. Um, what is the worst piece of media of any type that you guys have watched, played, read, etc. this year? And did you love it anyways? Um, I have an answer to this. I don't know. Do you, do you, Pete, we make you go first all the time. Mark, how about, how about, how about you start with this one? Uh, what is the worst piece of media that you experienced this year? Sure. This is a movie that came out in 2018, but I only caught in the beginning of 2019. So it qualifies uh, to answer this question. It is Mary Poppins Returns. Toasty take. And in a way, I just also, love it. Also, anyway. Mark, congratulations on not encountering any true trash. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like uh, uh, we've talked about this before, right? They kind of tried to avoid like, okay, the, the, the like I didn't see anything like Batman versus Superman Dawn of Justice bad this year, okay? And like I kind of want to revisit that at some point, um, just because that is like truly the dregs of, of of modern filmmaking, Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. But uh, let's talk about Mary Poppins Returns, okay? Um, it, it's it, it's grown in its badness in terms of like how shamelessly it, uh, it it sticks to the formula and structure of the original movie. Um, but even worse, the worst sin of it though is um, it. It betrays this uh, main concept of imagination, right? There's a, a, a song, and I'll talk about the music in just a second, but um, the whole gist of it is like, can you know, use your imagination, right? Escape the humdrum of the day to day and use your imagination. Well, you know what uh, would have been a great use of imagination? Coming up with an original storyline for Mary Poppins rather than just copying the one 
from uh, from the 1960s. So, yeah, uh, just kind of huge disappointment in that regard. That has only grown since I saw it in January into December. And the reason why it's grown is because I keep listening to the music and the music is delightful. And you guys talked about this in the podcast and, and, and he praised upon it. Mark Shaman, is that right, Matt, rather? Uh, yes. Um, the composer. Yes. Mark Shaman wrote the music for Mary Poppins Return. Mary Poppins Returns. Uh, that stuff was great. Listen to the music. I love that. Um, but the music, but the movie is terrible. You know, Belinky, uh, introduced me to a YouTuber, uh, YouTube, YouTube commentator who criticized Mary Poppins returns for being insufficiently anti-capitalist. So, uh, you know, that's, that's probably why it's, that's probably, that's why the worst thing you, because the guy just pays, uh, he pays his bills out of his brokerage account. That's the, the resolution of Mary Poppins returns. <laughs> because the, the conflict, okay. So the, the commentators, Lindsay Ellis, by the way, if you haven't seen Lindsay Ellis, she's great. Um, and her point, and I think it's interesting is that, so in the original, uh, in the original movie, the bank is definitely not a force for good, right? The bank is the problem and the dad's love and sort of like you know his his loyalty to the bank is something that needs to be resolved so he can be happy right and it's when he sort of quits his job in the bank and decides to go out and fly the kite like that's that's the successful resolution of the of the story whereas in mary poppins returns uh what happens the bank is going to foreclose on the house and the resolution is that like a higher up at the bank above the bad guy at the bank this comes to his attention he's like what the bank would never do something like this the person who decided to foreclose at your house doesn't really represent what the bank is all about that person's fired and of course you could keep your house why would we want to foreclose at your house yeah, i guess yeah i guess the only thing that can stop a bad guy with a promissory note is a good guy with a promissory <laughs> note <laughs> Uh, all right, uh, Mary Mary Poppins returns. Blinks, do you have a worst uh, uh, worst piece of media from 2019? I think it might have to be something that that we finished just probably like 90 minutes ago, <laughs> which would be the, the Michael Bay classic, instant classic, uh, Six Underground, um, which is on Netflix as we speak. Um, and it is quite something. It is. Yeah, it, it it combines the uh, visual coherence of early Michael Bay with the plot coherence of late Jean-Luc Godard. <laughs> you know how when you're watching like a Popeye cartoon that there's like action going on, but then as the action's going on, Popeye sort of has like a running monologue about what's happening. Like in Bluto has like a like a counterpoint. It's just, everyone's just sort of mumbling simultaneously in an unscripted way. <laughs> You know, and it's it's very like it's I it's it's like they animated it first, and then they're like just describe what's happening on the screen, guys. <laughs> uh, that's what that's how Six Hundred Crown was created. Um, but it's not. It's okay. So here's just to go into it a little deeper. It's not just that like it's it's incoherent nonsense. It's that like the plot of the movie, insofar it exists. Is that uh, Ryan Reynolds is a billionaire who realizes that there's there's a justice in the world and the government can't be trusted to resolve it because the government is is embroiled in in diplomacy and and self dealing and and basically like the the government sometimes is in bed with the very dictators that that according to Ryan Reynolds benevolent benevolent billionaire we should be taking out so Ryan Reynolds decides to recruit his own own team of. Um, mercenaries, super soldiers, assassins, and one parkour guy for some reason. You son of a bitch. I'm in. Yeah. It's, it should be just called You Son of a Bitch, I'm in, directed by Michael Bay. That's, that, um, that's only funny to you if you watch Rick and Morty. <laughs> which you should be. But the, basically the plot of the movie is that Mark Zuckerberg has decided to overthrow a nation. And you're supposed to be rooting for him because the the leader of this nation is objectively bad. He does many many bad things, and the and, and he looks very evil. And the music is very foreboding whenever he's on screen. But it is like it's literally a movie about how like if only a billionaire were to finance a hit squad to overthrow regimes that he personally thought needed to be overthrown, which I think there's something very very um, insidious about that as like the work of a major corporation being made for sort of a popular entertainment. Hmm. Uh, Pete, you want to go third? Hearing nothing, I will uh, I will proceed. Um, Sorry, I was on mute. I was on mute. I was getting geared up. <laughs> oh, got it. The, the, the engines were revving. Well, you've been yes. first and you've been last, but I don't think you've been third <laughs> okay okay 
So the actual worst thing was something that I didn't get more than a chapter into. So I don't think it's going to count. So I'm going to give you the thing that disgusted me so much that I immediately turned it off. And then I'm going to talk to you about a book, an audio book that I finished from beginning to end. That was the best and worst thing I read all year uh, and and blew my mind. And I don't know if I've talked to you guys about it yet, either on the podcast or in life. And I'm very excited to talk about it. And I, I won't go too long. So anyway, the terrible thing that I turned off and these both of these books belong in the same genre, which is kind of low, lowish profile books about people who are frustrated about how they manage their work and their personal time, right? Which is just this wonderful, it's this wonderful garden of literature of some of the worst freaking books you'll ever read in your entire life. Uh, and it was just like, how come sometimes I'm late to things, right? Or like, how comes I'm, how come sometimes I'm too busy to do the things that I enjoy? There are so many people who have books out there that have no business being in print that will, that will lecture you to no end about how you can make your life better. The worst one, that I couldn't get through is an audiobook by Susan David uh, that she narrates. And that's a big part of the problem is that it's an audiobook by someone who narrates the audiobook who is not good at narrating audiobooks and goes way too slow. And it's called Emotional Agility Get Unstuck, Embrace Change, and Thrive in Work and Life. Uh, I got it for free from my public library on the Libby app, which is awesome and you should totally use it. Uh, but you should not use it to listen to this audiobook. And you guys know. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have been keeping a private record of book reviews of all the books that I listen to from my public library on like a secret message board that I don't share with anybody <laughs> because I'm desperately afraid of anyone hearing my real opinion about some of these books. But at any rate, um, in this book, do you guys know the joke about the aircraft carrier that radios the uh, that radios the course correction during the, uh, the the rainstorm and like they banter? Do you know that joke? Have you heard it before? It's something about uh, the punchline is it's a lighthouse. Yes, thank you yeah. for, for ruining it because uh, she does too. So so this is a book, you know, sometimes in like an intellectual book, you start out with like a fun story that's supposed to kind of like hook you in and make you feel like, you know, you're doing good. This book starts with that joke, but like told poorly. And this is a joke that I've heard no fewer than three times from no fewer than three different people. Uh, and it's about a, a battleship or an aircraft carrier that's ordering a lighthouse to change course. And it's about kind of perspective and stuff. Uh, but the fact that she tells tells the story kind of as if she came up with it is offensive. And then it sort of goes into this sort of idea of like, you don't realize how lucky you are to live in the developed world and like, and, and have no real problems. <laughs> and it's such like, you should really consider that the things that you're dealing with at work are not real problems. Right. Um, and, and it's like, I, I found this concept just, and I don't, I'm sure she phrases it better than this because I didn't write down the exact quote. But the basic gist of it is like the reason that you're having problems with like your work life balance is because you don't realize that your problems don't matter. Um, and that was like the beginning of it. And it was just like, you. I can't fathom. I can't fathom somebody for whom, like, this is the actual solution to this question. But, but to put that aside, and this, it's you're being you're being to, sexually harassed by your boss, but your problems yeah. don't matter. People are starving yeah. in China. Okay, exactly. It's that kind of mentality that starts the book out, which is first a joke that she didn't make up that she takes credit for and reads too slowly, and also makes Irish for some reason, which maybe that's the original. I don't think so. And then the second, and then the second thing is sort of like. Um, yeah, like you don't know how lucky you are uh, thinking that this, these are your problems, which is a legitimate thing that you can say to somebody, but not the thing that you go to a book like this to get fixed. Um, but the actual book that blew my mind is by a guy by the name of Ken Blanchard, collaborating by a guy named Steve Gottfried. Uh, You may know Ken Blanchard as the co-author of the 80s hit The One Minute Manager. Oh, and by the way, I know we haven't gotten into all of this, but the best books of all time are the books that have a number and then a thing that you want to do, right? So like The 4-Hour Body or like The 4-Hour Office or like 24 Ways to Jump Off a Building or like any of these other kind of like hip, cool, uh, you know, self-help books that, that give you a number to hook your attention because studies show that people pay attention to numbers more. But anyway, The One Minute Manager was a, was a was something of a cultural hit in the 80s, even though it's kind of nonsense. But 
But if you jump all the way ahead to like 2006, he wrote like many sequels. And this one I stumbled upon and it's called The On-Time On-Target Manager. And it is a relatively short book that that makes a bunch of bizarre left turns in what it's about and which I just wish that I could just produce as a performance piece because it's unbelievable. Like this book is amazing and it's so bad. It's like so terrible. So so I'm going to summarize the plot for you now. Right. Um, the plot. There's a plot. Yeah. Oh, wow. Because um, it, it is because it is an instructive story like Pilgrim's Progress. Right. Uh, uh. <laughs> so this, so so the context is that this is a book that you have probably been told to read by your boss because you have been late to work. Right. And I was reading it because I was trying to come up with some time management strategies. But it's basically it's about a guy named Bob who works at a corporation at a company who is late for who is very well liked and is like liked by his employees. He's liked by his teammates and he does quality work, but he doesn't get it done on time. And so he is uh, threatened with being fired if he doesn't go into probation. And so you follow Bob on his journey uh, to the secret office of the chief effectiveness officer who puts him through a bunch of like borderline clockwork orange esque like video workshops that are narrated to you about like exercises he should do and things he should think about in terms of like how to be on time to work. Um, some of the topics, the movie that the book goes into is not even a movie. The book goes into um, 9-11. It goes into a lot of detail about 9-11. Oh, it talks about colon cancer a lot. Um, it, it talks about um, it's just basically like these are all the things that are that you should realize are part of your priorities. And it's just it spins out of control. And then it becomes like a hard sell for evangelical Christianity. And then it like abruptly changes again and becomes a hard sell at the very, very end for the Boys and Girls Club. Oh, no. But Big Brothers, Big Sisters of America. Right. Which, which is like like Bob has to go on this journey where he's like, oh, his wife is going to leave him because if he loses his job, like they've agreed that she can stay home with the kids and then she's going to have to go work. And isn't that really embarrassing for Bob? Because then he's not really a man anymore. Like this stuff, is, it's all of this, like, and it's from like 2006. Oh, it's crazy. So anyway, I know I'm gushing, but, um, but I will say that the place it's where it's whatever the opposite of gushing is, I mean, the book ends spoiler alert with, uh, with Bob deciding that his true calling is to run these workshops for other people and to apply for the job of the chief effectiveness officer who has, uh, who has indoctrinated him in the ways that he needs to prioritize and the sort of checklist that he needs to make in order to be on time at work. Uh, and so there's this sort of weird, like, identity-subsuming, weird contrapasso at the end of the thing. And then the secret twist is that the chief effectiveness officer was in the Boys and Girls Club of America America as the like little sister of the CEO of the company, which is like a twist. Um, I mean, this book is confounding. It's it's perplexing and impossible uh, and terrible. And I know I've wasted way too much time talking about it, but you absolutely have to read it if you could do so for no money. No, you really don't. It's so bad. But it it is a book that unironically uses the phrase "That's right, Bob." Like no fewer than a dozen. <laughs> does it does it quote Mad Men? How are you doing? Not great, Bob. <laughs> it's not. It's not even. It, it, this is a book about a person upset at the office by someone who's never watched Office Space and has no aware no awareness that that like genre of culture exists. It is like a utterly unironic being like, what if we told a story about somebody who goes to work, right? And and it's just like it just seems in this strange, bizarre bubble. So so I definitely recommend it and slam it at the same time. It's the best. It's the worst. Um, and uh, by all means, get the audio book because then you get it read to you like this, which which is part of the fun. Uh, absolutely bizarre, absolutely insane. So there you go. Uh, on time, on target. <laughs> hey, you know who was a really effective manager and also value, value time management? Osama bin Laden. I'm really not even joking. <laughs> because he executed a very long-term complex project quite effectively, by which, of course, I'm referring to the destruction of the Twin Towers on September 11th. Moving along. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You should go to work what? on time to what? because you what? don't know if you're going to get deadly terminal illness. Um, what? Why? Why are you talking about this? Anyway, sorry. Moving is it, on. Is it, is, on. It too, is it too soon for that kind of joke? Is my time management not on point? It's not a joke. It's, it's serious. The book is serious. It's like you should you should go on time to work because of terrorism. It's so strange. Definitely, it's oh, it's geez. absolutely so strange. Um, so yeah, check it out. But anyway, sorry. Move on. Move on. I, and it is uh, it is now my turn, and I will uh, I will answer now. I I laugh. 
at your your Mary Poppins. I laugh at your uh, you know dumb dumb management textbooks. Uh, I I laugh because my friends, I have seen. I, I I have been to the cold, frozen circle of hell in uh, a fictional European country. I have seen uh, <laughs> the horror uh, of of a uh, of an ossified monarchy dealing, trying to modernize uh, as as it uh, you know I don't know as it as it grows and welcomes the next generation. I have seen a Christmas prince, the royal baby. See, I thought you were going to say frozen, and I was going to. We were going to have words. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not that. It's uh, it's not that. Um, but I, I bring this up now. This is a bad film. Um, it it is a one hundred percent perfect achievement of its objective, <laughs> and it is a uh, bad film. But I, I bring it up because. The question was, what's the worst piece of media from this year? And did you love it anyways? And I'm guessing that the answer from you guys is nope. But the answer from me is yes. Because I watched A Christmas Prince with my girlfriend and we enjoyed it. We had a a great deal of fun. Um, you know, in the, in Genovia and the Genovia, uh, no, sorry, that's the Princess Diaries. Uh, the, in, in whatever the, the, the fictional small European monarchy is, uh, and we, we enjoyed watching it together. And this is, I think, like, uh, you know, this is a, a thing that, like, I, is maybe an interesting kind of typology that you can do. There, there are the things that you watch, the things that you experience that are good for you sort of individually or things that fascinate you, things that like you just could, could delve in. I actually read, I read a novel recently that I just like, I stayed up late to read this novel. It was, it was, I was rereading Body and Soul by Frank Conroy. And, uh, I like, I haven't for the longest time, A, read a novel or B, um, stayed up late to like stayed up until one in the morning, which for me is very late to, to read a book. Cause I just couldn't, I just couldn't put it down. Guys, it's like it was on autoplay <laughs> and the pages just kept turning themselves. Um, you know, but then there are also the, the, there's also the media that are like occasions for experience, for common experience, for, for sort of relationship. And yeah, not, not just like so bad it's good. That's not the phenomenon I'm talking about. I'm talking about even things that are bad, uh, can occasion an experience, uh, that is good, or at least it feels good. I don't know if it is good in some sort of, you know, ethical philosophic sense, but, but an experience that is enjoyable. Right. And, uh, so, so though make, make no mistake, uh, a Christmas Prince, the Royal baby is bad. Um, I had a good time watching it. All right. Let's, uh, let's, uh, end with a moonshot guys. This is a, a question from John C. It's not a question, but it raises, it raises a question. Um, we were talking about the moon landing on a recent podcast and, uh, and John C writes in, uh, it might be worth creating useless goals of that might be worth just creating useless goals of that magnitude, even if not, because as mentioned on the podcast, landing on the moon is an artificial problem that requires solving a bunch of problems that also exist in another context. And those solutions by being under the banner of the federal government are released into the economy where we can all benefit and build on them to the point where a lot of the estimates suggest that the Apollo program's return on investment of tax dollars was somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to one and NASA routinely being at least seven to one. And that includes wasting money on a new logo that got thrown out in favor of the clumsiest bit of graphic design in common use. So what is, what is, panel, our moon shot? What is a useless goal uh, <laughs> that we can, what is a useless goal that we can, uh, you know, propose um, that will involve solving a lot of ancillary problems up to it, and those ancillary problems will uh, benefit um, you know, everyone uh, will benefit everyone. Pete, I hear you giggling, so I think you might want. <laughs> I think you might want to go first in this uh, particular oh, one. Man, 
I kind of I mean, I kind of want to say something something along the lines of like a canal across the entire United States <laughs> or like some something that involves water management. Right. So like because because if I want to think about the problems that are difficult on an individual basis to solve, but as a whole represent like a huge both opportunity and problem that and the ones that, that I feel like people are trying and trying to tackle and making real progress at, but we just, we just need more fast. A lot of it has to do with water. So I wonder whether it's like something along the lines of, um, move Niagara falls a hundred, a thousand miles, right. Or like, uh, or dig a canal across the U S or, um, I guess what irrigate, irrigate every, I mean, you would wreck wreck so many of the different ecosystems, right? But it's like sort of um, some sort of boondoggle that requires like massive movement of water. Um, Although again, but you don't want to cause an ecological catastrophe. So is it something like, is it something like rebuild all seven wonders of the ancient world using maximum modern technology to the greatest extent possible, not necessarily to reproduce them, but to reproduce what they stand for and signify in the sense of wonder that they have to do with. So like build uh, what is the hanging gardens of Babylon to you? Right. Like, how would you make the best hanging gardens you could possibly make? How would you make the greatest colossus, the greatest lighthouse? Right. Um, I mean, a mausoleum of Halle Carnassus. How would you reinvent the concept of a mausoleum? Um, right. Like, what does that even mean to reinvent the concept of what it means to have a mausoleum? Um, yeah, I, I think it I think it starts with something that pumps water thousands of feet into the air for no reason i think that's really what it goes for and and much like the apollo program that did the same with air and metal uh and some i guess with some degree of water because it was split up into hydrogen and oxygen um but yeah yeah some some sort of thing that, that's got that sort of great great spectacle and fantastic uh aspect but which is utterly impossible so that's what i'm going to say i'm going to say the long way around is a um is is a new a new hanging gardens of Babylon that stretches the concept of what it means to provide water to spaces and plants, uh, and, and sort of maximizes our notion of what this could mean. It's not a smart goal because I'm leaving it kind of vague and artistic, but that's also because I I, uh, I want to leave some room for some of the other folks on the call to come up with an idea that's really going to blow your mind and change the world. So All there right. You go. Well, let's uh, let's go to that. Balinky, what do you what do you got for us? I like the the way that uh, the problem is laid out, which is that the moon landing may not uh, be intrinsically useful to humanity, but like the the solutions that it unearths will be. So here's the thing: I I feel like the greatest challenge facing our species is climate change, and I feel like in order to get at a solution, I feel like we got we got a last starfighter this baby. So what I want is to get a will right. Legendary game designer behind like Sim City, The Sims, uh, most notably in my household growing up, Sim Ant, where you got to lead your ant farm to not only uh, conquer all the other uh, ant colonies in the backyard, but actually eventually take over the house and force the family that lives in the house to move out and just have like a like a human house filled with billions of ants. That that was your goal. That what I wanted to do is design some sort of like carbon hunter video game, right? Where like you're you're you know, pursuing a, a number of technological and, and, you know, creative engineering solutions to the problem of, like, capturing all the carbon you can. And then what I want to do is, like, uh, hold some sort of world championship, but then it's actually just an attempt to kidnap these people that, like, you know, when, when the people show up for the, for the Sim Carbon uh, world championships, we just sort of fake some sort of accident so that uh, the world thinks that everyone was tragically killed uh, when, like, a blimp crashed, like the Goodyear blimp that's covering the, the you know, the, the stadium where the Sim Carbon championships are happening crashes, kills everybody. But in fact, it's a Manhattan project um, for some reason that we have to fake their deaths. I actually – now that I say it out loud, it's like why can't we just um, and, you know, ask these people really nicely to, to contribute their skills <laughs> for the good of humanity or pay them? But I like the idea that they need to be, they need to be uh, fake killed perhaps because it's the plot of Six Underground, my new least favorite favorite movie. Um, yeah, and we use these people to, to save the world. I love your idea, Matt, because I love the the idea baked into it that you have to make a game that's compelling enough that people actually want to play it. And I would kind of humbly suggest that the success of the game in terms of attracting players is a big metric for the success of the project. 
because I feel like it would be very easy to make a feel good game that doesn't tackle the reality that uh, reducing the emission of carbon into the atmosphere is not fun and requires like people to do things that they don't want to do. And and as such, uh, a way of kind of of not just kind of. of, of coming up with a solution, but a way of like creating a solution that people voluntarily do in their own time. Uh, and, and to the degree that they, that the people who are virtuosic have a sort of special quality over others. Like that to me seems absolutely brilliant. And I don't know if it's possible. It seems more of a dream, but then again, so is, uh, so is protecting the frontier. Right. Uh, and, and then one brave, one brave starfighter was able to do it. So there you go. Mark, you, uh, well, you know what you, you actually work, in uh, in large scale projects of of this type, so I'm going to leave you for the end, and I'm going to say uh, I would like I'm I'm stealing mine from Pete from uh, from um, years and years and years ago. Uh, Pete Pete said like what I, I think the question was put to you, Pete. What what is the um, what is the thing uh, that you the one change that you could make to America to uh, to you know improve things for a large number of people? And Pete proposed a nationwide system of heavily subsidized public transportation. <laughs> Well, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> that that was, uh, you know, and the the reasoning was was complex and and subtle in places. But one of the one of the things was that um, yeah, few things can can bankrupt a struggling family like the expense of owning and maintaining a car. And uh, I mean, I guess these days this was this was before uh, health costs. I guess had had um, you know had spiraled out of control to their to their current crazy level. So I guess these days you could say a few things would could could bankrupt a struggling family like you know falling and breaking a leg. But uh, I'm gonna go with um, I'm gonna go with uh, the heavily subsidized public transportation. So here's here's the uh, you know here's the thing. I would like to get from San Diego to Portland, Maine. Uh, without on on public transportation without paying a cent and um, all all kinds of things largely having to do with standardization uh, would and and largely had having to do with sort of uh, you know uh, uh, federalism and and uh, you know states and and federalism and stuff would have to be solved uh, politically in order to make a uh, that highly subsidized network of public transportation a reality we can't even build a high speed rail from Los Angeles to San Francisco in the state of California something that everybody wants everyone wants to get from LA to San Francisco in like 90 minutes and we can't do it we can't we can't make it happen so uh mine is about you know less about um averting ecological catastrophe and and more about the kind of the the political will that it would take to get this done but uh in this decade we will send a man or woman from san diego to portland maine without paying a cent not because it is easy but because it is hard not yeah yeah, not (laughs) not not because the seats are soft but because the seats are hard and because lobster rolls are delicious Yeah, the thing that makes it a real boondoggle is the idea that once you set up that line, it would be used to go from San Diego to Maine and not the other way around. Yeah, just to be clear, you will not be able to get back for free. This is all a a secret plan to get people to immigrate to Maine and trap them there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Subsidize the – I mean that would be a funny thing. Subsidize the the flow of people moving into states where it's politically desirable to have a certain demographic of voter. Ooh, my nefarious plan becomes clear. Mark, bring us – bring this question and this podcast home. What is our moonshot on the Overthinking It podcast? Well, I'll give a couple. One because um, you know you invoked uh, my my day job in in government, and you know that being the place where big ideas happen. Um, so I'll, I'll give that quickly, but I'll give my actual. One. Yeah, sure. That's uh, what happens second. in government. Yeah, I know, right? Um, okay, so what I really, <laughs> what I really need and want and and desire is um, a standardized way of identifying businesses in the city of New York um, so that you can track them across multiple city agencies. I, I'm not even joking. That is like extraordinarily... <laughs> so a phone book. You want the phone book, but like except, one that except, works. Except, no, Pete. You make, you, you make it sound so simple. And oh, it's it not. not. It is absolutely not. This is this is a huge problem, and, and, and solving it would uh, reap enormous, enormous benefit 
to citizens of New York and businesses and government and and many, many stakeholders. Um, But that's not what I'm here to talk about. What I really want to talk about is um, revitalizing the Yiddish Theater Walk of Fame in New York City. I'm not even joking. Okay, you guys, this is a thing. Um, When I moved to the East Village of New York City in 2005, there was exactly what I just said, a Yiddish Theater Walk of Fame on second avenue in the east village of new york and it was like the hollywood uh you know star walk of fame except uh you know ex- much much smaller and in 2005 you can actually make out the names and the stars for the yiddish uh theater walk of fame were in front of the second avenue deli uh the the, the famous uh, jewish deli of new york city second avenue deli is no longer there it's a chase bank the stars themselves are, are extremely worn down because of all the uh, gentrifiers who have, uh, myself included, who have trod upon it over the years, and no one, you know, has like the you know the money or the uh, priority to, to 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 restore that. Um, I, I want this to come back um, because it's a roundabout way to get the Yiddish version of Fiddler on the Roof to be seen by as many people as possible. Because Blinky and I just saw it recently, and it is truly um, a, a wonderful, incredibly deeply moving work of art uh it just kind of like re-inspires uh, a lot of joy and, and and admiration for the theater and what is possible in life theater and empathy for your fellow human being uh in these dark times uh, that's something we could all use and uh, if it brings back the second avenue deli and the yiddish uh walk of fame in, in new york city on second avenue then yeah let's do that make it happen is Cats, gone, is Cats is gone too, or is Cats is still there? Oh, Cats is coming back uh, to theaters in in in, De- in December. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> Not Cats. Cats is me now and forever. <laughs> oh, well, and ever was there ever a sandwich quite like? <laughs> I hope you have what she oh. had. <laughs> Cats' delicatessen of when Harry Met Sally fame is still there, and as far as I know, it's not going anywhere anytime soon. All right. Well, we managed to answer three questions in an hour and five minutes of this podcast. A new record for us in terms of how fast we deal with questions. Um, all right. Stay tuned for some Star Wars next week. Go see as as uh, you know as they say in Arrested Development. Go watch a Star War and uh, have a. Um, you know, have a fun time perusing the Overthinking It Holiday gift guide. A link is at, at the top of the show notes for this episode. So right now, in your podcast app, go. Just just tap on that. Go uh, go look at some things. And w- would it kill you to buy uh, the Player's Handbook for Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition? Um, we'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcasts. Until then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't deserve.